Open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. I'm continuing with our series on Christianity 101. We only have a few more messages left in this series. This morning I'm speaking on charity. We need a biblical understanding of charity. And you'll see in a minute how relevant that is to our time. Uh, next week we have Larry Clayton. And Larry Clayton is, um, he is a church planter extraordinaire. I think he started more than 130 churches. And he's going to be with us tomorrow, uh, next Sunday morning. The following Sunday, Lord willing, I'm going to bring a message on alcohol. Christianity 101. What, you know, so in Christianity right now, in evangelical Christianity, there's a real push toward drinking and drinking alcoholic beverages. And so we're going to be talking about that. What does the Bible say about that? How should we as Christians approach that subject? And then I'm going to be doing a message uh, that would continue what we started earlier when I did a message called, What's the Difference? How do we as a church compare to the other major religions? And I'm going to be doing a message on Pentecostalism, the history of Pentecostalism. Who are all of these groups? What do they believe? And how do they differ from who we are? And then I'll be doing a message on just basic personal holiness. Personal holiness. You know, some people come from very legalistic backgrounds, whether it's Pentecostal holiness or um, independent Baptist fundamentalism sometimes where it's very legalistic. And on the other side, we have people that say, hey, I'm a Christian. I can do anything I want to. There's no rules at all. Well, we don't need a list of rules. We have the Bible. Amen. So we need to look at, if we're going to understand Christianity 101, we need to understand what does the Bible say about personal holiness. So some of the, those are some of the topics that we're going to be going through. And then, Lord willing, we're going to get back to the book of Zechariah. How many of you have started coming to the church since I stopped preaching through Zechariah? Would you raise your hands? How many of you have not heard any of the Zechariah series? That is so funny. So we'll, we'll review. We'll bring everybody up to speed. It's been several years, but we're going to go back and finish the book of Zechariah. So let's be in prayer for that. And why don't we go to the Lord now and ask Him to help us. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. And Lord, I do count it a privilege uh, to preach it. And You know that um, personally, I, I just don't know what I would do if I couldn't preach. So Father, thank You for the opportunity. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Grace Baptist Church and the people that are here. Help us to have a genuine biblical understanding of what charity is in the Bible in Jesus' name, amen. So, Christianity 101. We know that people have made this statement. All religions are fundamentally the same. All religions are fundamentally the same. I wonder how many of you could give the list. And our answer to that is except they are exactly the same, except for what they teach about sin, salvation, heaven, hell, the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of the church and its members. Other than that... All religions are completely the same. So that has been our outline, and we're going into some other things as well. So this morning I want to look at the doctrine of charity, and it's good to have uh, Tristan and Sarah, the Mr. and Mrs. Divins, back here with us. That's, that's fun to see you guys. All right, Colossians chapter 3, and let's look at um, verse 1. We'll just start in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. 
For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members. That's put to death. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I understand there's some old words in there, but how many of you can tell that it's a bad list? Okay, so we won't get into each and every one of those. For which sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. I will say this. We live in a time where um, immorality is the order of the day and where even Christian parents expect their children to behave in an immoral way. Well, not a Grace Baptist Church, we don't. Amen? We, biblically, we expect purity and holiness because that is the demand that Christ makes on all of us. Be ye holy as I am holy, God says. Okay? So, but what I want you to see here, verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. People don't get away with it. There is a holy God, and He is a wrathful God. All right? Now, look at what it says in verse 7. In the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Isn't it wonderful that God can save people out of that lifestyle? Amen. Isn't that good? He saves us. Then look at what it says in verse 8. But now ye also put off all these. So it's so funny. There's, there's two different lists. There's a list of things that everybody who's a Christian would say is wrong. And then there's some Christian sins that are listed. It's interesting. Look at what it says. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man and his deeds. So it's like you're taking off a coat. I am not going to do those things anymore. But then look at what it says. Now, not only are we going to take that off, but we're going to put something else on. Look at what it says. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. So the first thing that you put on is you're renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We need to learn some new things. When we get saved, we need to learn some new things, right? And that's, a, that's something that you do on purpose. Then look at what it says. Who were, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Man, we're hearing a lot about racism right now in, on the news. Right? We're hearing a lot of these discussions. And what can happen because we react... I don't know about you guys, but when someone is falsely accused of racism, that bothers me. Right? But the reaction to that should not be to become racist. Right? Don't be racist and don't accuse people of being racist who aren't. These things are a little bit more complicated than the small-minded people in the media want us to believe, all right? And let me just say this, since people's minds went there. The president shouldn't have said that. If he did say it, I don't know that he did. Dick Derman's a liar, so who knows whether he said it or not. But how many of you could imagine him saying something like that, though? Right? I, you know, he shouldn't have said it that way. He needs to understand that when you're the president, there's no such thing as a private conversation. Right? Come on, Mr. President, you need to learn what's going on. Secondly... Really important to understand this. These are not good places these people are coming from. And identifying Haiti as a bad place that you wouldn't want to live is not racist. 
Talk to somebody from Haiti. They don't like it. They don't want to be there. So to apply racism to statements like that, it's just silly. It's just silly. But the reaction is not, the proper reaction is not to become racist yourself. Now, I don't think any of you would, but the, but the reaction is not to use racist language in response to being called a racist. Is that fair? All right, so I don't know how I got to that. Oh, yeah, because of Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision. We're all one in Christ, right? We're not rich people here or poor people. We're not white people or black people. We're we're not Asian people or, you know, Nordic people. We're Christians, right? We're not short people or tall people because only a few of us are blessed with the perfect height. That's not the issue. We are all one in Christ. Amen? Amen. We're all one in Christ. Okay, so put off that old thinking. Put on new thinking. Verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. What's that? You've got to have mercy in your inner man, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any... Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. All right? So these are, how many of you can see these are basic Christian disciplines? Right? These are things that we're supposed to put on. But now look at verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So the most important of the Christian disciplines is charity. Do you get that from this list? Is that what you would take from the reading of it? It's the bond of perfectness. We know that the height of biblical maturity is charity. So what is charity? Charity, let's, let's, let's define what charity is from the Bible, all right? So go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's make it 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. So he's just saying that it wasn't empty, that it accomplished something. But even after that, we we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetous, or a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor sought we, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were... Now, here's, he's going to start describing what a charitable attitude is. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth, cherisheth her children. Have you ever seen someone being rough with a baby? Does that bother you? Yeah. Yes, it's not supposed to be. That's the way that we're supposed to treat new believers. We're supposed to be gentle with them. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing. 
And then look at what it says in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing, look at this, to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also money. Is that what it says? Also jobs. Also job training. No. It says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. You see, this concept of charity is not about giving money, and we'll see that in a minute. The idea of Christian charity is the giving of yourself. And that's what the Apostle Paul was demonstrating. But I want you to notice something. Look at it. Let's read this verse again. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel, but our own souls. Is that what it says? What does it say? Not the gospel. It's so important that we get this. Charity is love that gives. That's what charity is. Charity is love that gives. I want to talk, first of all, about charity that's distorted. Charity distorted. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, we should provide for him. What's it say? For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. You know, you've got lots of time to get involved in other people's lives when you're not working. Have you ever said this to somebody? Man, I don't have time to think about that. When you're not working, you've got lots of time to think about everything. You become busybodies. Verse 12. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with, what's that next word? Quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye brethren, be not weary in, in, uh, in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. You know, there's, there used to be shame in not working. Now look, if you're physically incapable of labor, well, then the church is supposed to help you out. If you've done everything you can, you're physically incapable of labor, then it's our job to help you. If you don't want to work, to quote the great philosopher Steve Martin, die, you gravy-sucking pig. <laughs> if a man would not work, neither should he eat. Is that what the Bible says? What's the result of not eating? Weight loss? <laughs> I can stand to experience some of that myself, yes. It is weight loss, and ultimately, if you wait long enough, you're just going to die. How many of you think that people in the United States, let's just narrow it down to Shelby County. How many of you think that people are going to die of starvation in Shelby County, Ohio? A dead man can get a job in Shelby County, Ohio. You know, you could eat at McDonald's every day and live. 
right? <laughs> Some of you are going, ah. Oh. Man, a hamburger's okay. It's a buck, 89 cents or whatever. It, it's, they're not going to die. They're not going to die. And it's, so how do we balance biblical charity? Isn't it interesting that the same, that the same apostle to the same church is talking about we give not only the gospel but our own selves because we're affectionately desirous. And if a guy won't work, don't let him eat. Eat your own bread. Stop taking from other people. Same book. Same book of the Bible. So what happens is charity has been... This concept of charity has been distorted. And we need to get a biblical understanding of what charity is because I can tell you this, biblical charity is much harder than worldly charity. Biblical charity is much more costly than worldly charity. So where, how did charity go off the rails? Well, at least in the 20th century, it went off the rails through a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch. Walter Rauschenbusch was a Baptist. He was a Baptist pastor from, from uh, Cleveland and then Rochester, New York. And what he did was he invented something called the social gospel. The social gospel. Let me read to you a little bit about Rauschenbusch. He was born in 1961. He died in 1918. And he did not understand Jesus Christ's death as an act of substitutionary atonement. So he didn't believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins individually. He believed that Jesus died to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. Let me make that statement again. He believed that Jesus died to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. And what you're going to find when you look at the way our news media attacks a biblical understanding of work and labor and finance and economy, when you hear the way that it's attacked, I want you to understand that all of those attacks go back to this man, Walter Rauschenbusch. Because people have a misunderstanding of what the church is supposed to be. All right? Um, he taught that the kingdom of God is, quote, not a matter of getting individuals to heaven but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. Well, how are we doing? How many of you are glad that this is not heaven? Right? And if you lived in Haiti, you'd be really glad that this is not heaven. He said this, Jesus did not in any real sense bear the sin of some ancient Briton, somebody from England, who beat up his wife in B.C. 56, or of some mountaineer in Tennessee who got drunk in, in 1917. But he did, in a very real sense, bear the weight of the public sins of organized society, and they, in turn, are causally connected with all private sins. So Rauschenbusch identified six social sins that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. Religious bigotry, in other words, identifying someone's doctrine as heresy. Jesus died because of that sin. The combination of graft and political power, the corruption of justice. So this social justice concept, it goes back to Rauschenbusch. The mob spirit being the social group gone mad. Then militarism and class contempt. He found four centers of evil. All right. So what Jesus died on the cross are these four centers of national evil. Now listen to what they are. Militarism. Individualism. Capitalism. And nationalism. Let me read those again. Think about the way that the media responds to everything that is 
biblical. Everything that's right. And listen to the things that Walter Rauschenbusch and the social gospel taught revolutionized the world. The four things that you have to teach against are militarism, individualism, capitalism, and nationalism. What are the four embodiments of good? That's the evil. The four embodiments of good are pacifism. Remember, any nation that believes it can maintain peace using only peaceful means will soon be at peace of another nation. Right? The Bible says that God gave the government the sword to be a minister of evil to evildoers. That's why police carry guns. That's why we have a military. There's nothing wrong with having a military. Now, the military must be used righteously. But a military is not bad, and pacifism is great as long as you've got somebody with a gun defending you. You're right to be a pacifist. Um, my dad would always quote the Quaker. Someone was breaking into his house, and he said, Sir, I would not harm thee for any reason, but thou art standing where I am about to shoot. <laughs> Four embodiments of good, pacifism, collectivism. Collectivism is what yours is mine. I just wanted to go to Bernie Sanders' rally and ask for his car keys and tell him it's my turn. Pacifism, collectivism, socialism, and internationalism. So internationalism is the opposite of nationalism. And what the media tries to do is they try to equate nationalism with Nazism. They're not the same thing. You just need to understand that God hates the concept of a one-world government. When God scattered the languages and confounded the languages, scattered the people in the Tower of Babel, He did that because when the entire world comes together, it always ends badly. God believes in boundaries. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. That ancient landmark, that, those were property lines. God believes in national and teaches national boundaries and governments are established to maintain those boundaries and to defend the inalienable rights that God has given to the people within that nation. So this idea of pacifism, collectivism, socialism, and internationalism, that is the basis for every attack on us that goes on, whether it's on a college campus or from the liberal media that we hear. And it all comes back to a false understanding of charity. So we need a biblical understanding of charity, which is much more difficult than the charity that is identified from people like Walter Rauschenbusch. Um, go back to, or go with me to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if we're going to understand charity, that'd be a good place to go, wouldn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The result of this social gospel influence, even though Rauschenbusch was a Baptist, that influence went into really every area of modern religion. So how many of you have ever heard someone's going on a missions trip? Well, what that missions trip is, is they're going to go and build a hospital or build a house or hand out food. Have you ever, don't understand that? And the gospel's not given. Why is that? Because it's much easier to ladle soup than it is to tell someone about their lost and sinful condition before a righteous and holy God. Now, it's possible to give them the soup and the gospel, and I'm all for that. But the issue is, if the gospel is not there, 
There is no such thing as a social gospel. In this New Testament age, there's only the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as there's no such thing as social justice. There's only justice, and you don't want it. Because if you receive justice, then you would be in hell right now, as I would. But we receive mercy, the Bible says. Now, I do want there to be justice, but the Bible says that He might be the just and the justifier of them that believe. He can declare us just. He can declare us righteous, and that's what the atonement does. Justification is where God declares us righteous through His justice. Social justice is completely impossible if we don't have a good understanding of good and evil, individual liberty, private property, and equal justice before the law. Without those concepts, there's no such thing as social justice, and the social justice warriors are completely against everything I just said. So it's important that we understand that this concept of charity has been distorted. So let's define charity biblically. First of all, charity edifies. Keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 13, but go with me to 1 Corinthians 8. Let's get a biblical understanding of charity. First Corinthians chapter 8. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have knowledge, that we all have knowledge. So what he's saying is everybody in Corinth understands that there's this subject, that when these pagan sacrifices are made, that meat, those animals are offered, they're burned, and then that meat is taken out and it's sold. And so some people who had come out of that pagan religion and gotten saved, they didn't want to eat that meat. They didn't want to eat it. Now, we understand it's just meat because those idols are nothing. They're, they don't exist. They're not real. It's just food. And it was cheaper than the food somewhere else. So there's nothing wrong with going and eating that food. And so what Paul is saying is we all know that about this subject. But then look at what he says. We all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity edifieth. Charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, I love this, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. None of us know as much as we think we do or as much as we ought to. That's what the text is saying. But what he says about charity, knowledge puffs up. And this is something that we at Grace Baptist Church, we love the teaching of the Bible, right? We love information. We're going to come from it biblically, historically, culturally. We're going to understand the truth and we're going to do it with facts and information. And we're going to make sure that what we, the information that we have is right. But man, that knowledge can puff up. You can get this idea, well, I know more than you do. Well, it's probably not. But if, if you do know something that someone else doesn't know, that knowledge isn't supposed to puff you up. That knowledge is supposed to make you want to build that other person up. That's what it's supposed to do. So this idea of charity edifying, what charity does is it's charity edifies believers. It's investing in someone else to see that person grow. This is discipleship. This is discipleship. The heart of Grace Baptist Church is making disciples. Now, remember, the first and necessary step of discipleship is you must be born again. 
That means you have to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life. But that's not where it ends. And in churches like ours, what has happened is people get saved and then they're taught how to give someone else the gospel. Well, that's great. And I'm glad we do that. We do that here. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship is investing in that person to an edify means to build them up like a building is an edifice. You build that person up in the word of God. And what we want to do here at Grace Baptist Church is the goal of discipleship is, first of all, to, to establish for the believer, to establish your disciple in a meaningful relationship with God through the Word of God and prayer. So you're establishing that person as, with the Bible as their only authority for faith and practice. We don't follow creeds. We don't follow confessions. We don't follow mandates handed down from some church authority. Our authority is the Word of God, and we communicate with God through His Word and prayer. That's one of the goals of discipleship. The second goal of discipleship is to establish your disciple in a meaningful relationship with believers through fellowship. And here's the problem. The Bible says there's only two families in the world. There's God's family and there's Satan's family. Remember what he said to the Pharisees? You're of your father the devil. There's two families. There's God's family and there's Satan's family. You got into Satan's family by being born. And that's why you must be born again. You get into God's family by being born again. And the problem is that for most people, their relationships are still in Satan's family. One of the, one of the goals of discipleship is to establish for the believer relationships with other believers that produce growth, that produce holiness, and that give you what you need. I'll tell you what, one of the things that I'm so excited for at Grace Baptist Church is the relationships that I see growing. So I had, so I'm discipling a guy right now. And he told me this week, he named someone else in the church. He said, I'm so thankful for him. He's helped me so much. How has he helped him? By giving him money? No, he's his friend. They're just together. That kind of relationship is vital. We men, we need friends. You ladies, you need godly friends and godly relationships. That's what discipleship does. It establishes you in the family of God and the fellowship of the believer. The third goal is to establish a disciple in a, in a meaningful relationship with the New Testament church. God's chosen vehicle of expression in this age is the local church. That's what discipleship is. Sometimes people will say, can I disciple somebody who doesn't come to Grace Baptist Church? Well, that kind of defeats the purpose. You can give them information, but it's not discipleship. Discipleship is demonstrating that the emphasis of the New Testament is the local church and that you can't properly use the gifts that God has given you outside of the local church. You need to be an active participant in the life of the New Testament church. And Grace Baptist Church is better as we all use the gifts that God has given us individually. I'm glad that everybody in the church isn't like me. Right? Because services wouldn't start on time. We wouldn't even know when they would, when they were, we were supposed to meet. I'm so scattered. I forget everything. It's ter I'm glad there are people in the church with memories. <laughs> That's a good thing. I'm glad that there are people who provide gifts that I don't have. That's vital for the church. And you need to be an active participant in the life of the church through your time, through your talent, that's your giftedness, and through your treasure, through your finances. We don't have any outside organization giving money to Grace Baptist Church. It's funded as God blesses us, we give back to Him through the New Testament church. And then the, the fourth goal of discipleship is to establish your disciple in the work of the Lord. 
the work of the Lord. Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 said, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. That was before he went to the cross. The work of the Lord is the work that the Lord was doing when he was here on earth working. The work of the Lord was, in John 17, we have it very clear, he, his disciples were ready. He said, I have given them the word, thy words. I've shown them your name. He's shown them your name, that's evangelism. I've given them the words, that's discipleship. And I've sent them out into the world. That's discipleship. That's what we're supposed to do. And so charity is, it edifies, it's discipleship. It's investing in someone else. Now, here's the question. This is, this is for all of you believers. Have you done this with someone? Have you established a believer in these areas that are the goal of biblical discipleship? If you haven't, we want to help you to know how to do that. Remember what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. The job of the pastor and the teacher is to prepare someone else to do the work of the ministry. Not to just do the ministry myself, is to show you how to teach someone else how to do the work of the ministry so that we're all doing that work. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And what are those things? Chapter 1 and verse 13, follow after a pattern of sound words. So what I'm supposed to do as a pastor is I take the word that's been handed to me and I give it to Chad. And then Chad takes that word and he gives it to Jeff. And then Jeff takes that word and he gives it to Bob. And then Bob takes that word and he gives it to Carl. And Carl takes that word and he gives it, you see? That's what it is. And it's not that you're inventing the wheel every time. It's that you're taking the same thing that you heard and you're investing that in someone else. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I would that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. How is that accomplished? It's when every individual understands that it is their job to take the Word of God and invest that in someone else. And you're not only giving them information, you're taking the life that God has given you and you're transferring that life to someone else. Remember what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is going and it's preaching and it's baptizing, but then and teaching them to do all things whatsoever I have commanded. That's what discipleship is. That's what charity is. Let me ask you a question. Which is easier? I don't have any money. Let's pretend that's money. What's easier? This or spending a year or two establishing somebody in the Bible? Which is harder? Giving money or charity? Isn't that interesting? It's really important that we understand this. So, first of all, charity edifies. That's, that's, we're, we're defining charity. Then go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Charity edifies believers. This is discipleship. And then, I, I want you to see what, what charity also does. 
is charity eliminates our blind spots. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So there's some giftedness. Oh, what a wonderful speaker, right? That's just nothing. It's nothing. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, what's it say? I am what? Nothing. Now, it's so important that we get this. That this A proper understanding of charity helps us to understand our giftedness. It helps us to understand these, these different gifts that God gives us and abilities that God gives us. If we don't use them to edify other believers and invest in people, then it's nothing. It's nothing. And I want to help you see how the Bible... I say this all the time in our Bible study, our Wednesday night Bible study. It is amazing how often that Christianity defines something exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. So the idea of charity, giving to the poor, how many of you have heard, would think that that's probably the understanding that people have, that charity is giving to the poor? How many of you think that's, that's a pretty standard understanding? Am I making it up or do you think that's a pretty good standard? Let's see if that's what the Bible says. Look at the next verse, verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So take out that giving your body to be burned and, and look at the, the beginning of that. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. That means that giving your goods to feed the poor is not charity. Can you see that the, that the definition in Christianity is the opposite of what the Bible says. That is that you can give everything you have to feed the poor, and that's not charity. So what this does, what a proper understanding of charity does, is it helps us with our blind spots. Hey, I'm doing this. I'm using this ability. I have this gift. Well, if the use of that gift is not the building up of someone else's life, then it is nothing. It's nothing. You know that people have died for the faith and it's meaningless? Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Think about that. Then, look at what it says. This is so important. So, charity, it eliminates our blind spots. The... It's the true measure of giftedness. This is discernment. It's discernment. And then charity also eliminates boasting. Look at what it says in verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity eliminates boasting. This is the most important part of understanding what charity is. Charity is love. It's love given with nothing expected in return. 
And look, we have a lot of people that invest, and then when the person doesn't respond right or it's not reciprocated, then there's hard feelings. That's not charitable. One of the things about the ministry that's difficult is the people you invest in the most leave the easiest. The people you invest in the most criticize the most. Have you ever experienced that? You really invest in somebody and they, they turn around and... Uh, we, Laura has invested in people like you wouldn't believe. She has taken over people's finances for them, written all their checks, paid all their bills, contacted all of their creditors. And then the person didn't like something that was said and left. Just investing, that's, that's genuine. See, we could have given money to that person, but that wouldn't have helped them. They need to understand how to live. You understand some people are just bad at life, right? Right? So one of the things that discipleship does is it invests in that person to teach them what the Bible says about individual responsibility, personal accountability, and the, what private property really means in the establishment of wealth and the growth of income. All of that's a part of discipleship. But when people think that you have to do that for them, they don't understand charity. But here's the thing. If that person came back, we'd love them like crazy. We didn't do it expecting anything in return. Why? Because that's what the ministry is. You invest in the lives of other people. It's vital. It eliminates boasting. This is devotion. It's devotion. And then... This is such an amazing thing. Charity endures beyond human capacity. Look at what it says in verse 8. Charity, what's that next word? Never faileth. And look at all the other things that can fail. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. We don't understand everything. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the what? What's that word? But the greatest of these is charity. It's interesting. Charity endures beyond human capacity. It loves until Jesus comes. This is divine. This is divine. How many of you know somebody that you're supposed to love, but you struggle with it? You might be married to them. If we understand, the Bible says, set your affection on things above. The book of Colossians. Set your, that means that you can choose where to set your affection. Right? And so this divine love of loving until Christ comes back, I can't do it. Have you seen that lady Laura showed me these YouTube things? This lady says, I ain't doing it. Have you seen those? Hilarious. I ain't doing it. Here's the thing. I can't do it. In my, my nature, God, see, we're all gifted. I have the gift of criticism. <laughs> it's hard for me to love some people, especially, listen, especially people that aren't like me. Actually, those are probably people I don't like the most, the ones that are like me. 
And it's so interesting, I'm still commanded to love those people. And here's the deal. We can all get along with somebody for a period of time, right? Have you ever said this? Man, I'm glad I don't have to live with that person. We all say that when our kids go back to college. It's awesome. I'm so glad I don't have to. It's a joke, Jacob, just a little joke. Lydia? Um, It's really important that we get this. As believers, this investment in people, it's supposed to be until Christ comes back. When are you done discipling somebody? Now, in the training, we say you're done discipling through the program when they're discipling somebody else because the goal of discipleship is to reproduce reproducers, right? But that, that's, the, that's the program part of it. The biblical ministry part of it is when, you're done, when are you done discipling that person? Never. Never. That is supposed to be a relationship that is established until Christ comes back because charity edifies not until you're done with the book, but until Christ returns. See, if Christians could, could grasp this concept of charity, the divorce rate among Christians would go down. Because charity never fails. We were at Tristan and Sarah's wedding, and I told Steve Clayton that it was one of the best services, best sermons at a, at a wedding that I'd ever heard. And he kept emphasizing forever, forever. This is it. This is it forever. And all of us who are married stood before God and God's people and a preacher and said, until death do us part. Not until he drives me crazy. Man, if that was the case, most marriages wouldn't last the first year. You know what's funny? You, you, you won't be surprised at this. I was shocked. I thought our early marriage was nothing but bliss because I'm awesome. Do you know what I found out? I was driving her crazy. And not in a good way. See, Christian charity is saying, I'm going to love you until Jesus comes back. There are some marriages that could be healed in this room or in the overflows or somebody listening online. There are some marriages that could be healed if people understood that. Look at what it says. Verse 8, charity. What's that next word? Never faileth. But the only way that that can really become meaningful is when we understand that there's no way I can do that. God can, though. Are you saved? Does anybody here you know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior? You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. Charity never fails. God will give you that capacity to love until He comes back. I love it that the word charity is used here because charity is different than love. People can infuse that word love with anything they want. Charity is defined as giving yourself. That's what it is. It's divine. But then, let's just finish it with this. So we have charity distorted and charity defined. But lastly, I want you to see charity demonstrated. Go to John chapter 15.
John 15, look at verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Did Jesus Christ demonstrate what true charity is? See, here's the deal. We want to invest in people that we like. We want to invest in people that we believe are worthy of our investment. Now listen, when you're making a financial investment, I want you to make sure that you're investing in something that's worthy of the investment, right? Otherwise, that's foolish. You're not being a good steward. But that's not what discipleship is. That's not what charity is. Charity is investing regardless of whether you get it back. Charity is investing regardless of the worth of the individual. Charity is investing regardless of whether that person gives you that kind of respect and love back. Charity is just giving yourself. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. Affectionately desirous. How many of you, there's somebody that you just enjoy seeing when you see them put a smile on your face? Laura generally goes to bed before I do. And so last night she, was, she said goodnight. And she came back out. To, she was taking some towels or something over to the other side of the house, the kids' room. And I smiled and I said, I like it when I get to see you extra. It was, it was cool. I got to see her again because I love her. Well, that's great for your spouse that you love. How many of you think I probably ought to love my wife that way? Right? That's, I'm supposed to do that. And because I'm such a great guy, I do. But <laughs> how different is it to love the, the homeless guy, the drunk, the, or the person that owes you money? You know, or the, the, the whoremonger, the person you work with that's just a, you know, a real deplorable, not one of Hillary's deplorables. So to, what, do you understand the difference? When there's someone that has demonstrated they're lovable and are worthy of love like my wife has to me, well, it's no great thing for me to love her. I'd be an idiot not to. But what about when I'm willing to invest in the person that is unlovely? That's when I become like Christ. Do you see how charity's been distorted? Charity's not me coming down off of my high horse to go and spend time with the unwashed masses. Charity is me loving people in Christ regardless of their social statement, their status, or or the winsomeness of their personality. My job is to invest in them. That's what biblical charity is. Can you imagine if we as a church genuinely took this to heart? Do you see why this is Christianity 101? I want you to think about something. There was a guy, his name was James Burroughs. He was a slave. And in Philadelphia in 1809... First Baptist Church was there, but there were a group of black people that wanted their own church. So they separated in, and First Baptist helped start this church. It's called the First African Baptist Church, 1809 in Philadelphia. And they had a pastor. That pastor 
moved on and they were looking for a pastor. There was a man named James Burroughs who was a slave in Virginia. And Burroughs was called to preach by his master. And so he heard about this church, or this church heard about him because he would preach and he was a gifted preacher. So this church in Philadelphia sent to Burroughs, who was a slave in Virginia, and said, we want you to come be our pastor. And so Burroughs went to his earthly master and told, told him that and said, I'll go to Philadelphia and I'll try to earn enough money to pay you for my value. And he said, sure, you can do that, but I've got to have some kind of guarantee. So two brothers, Samuel, I believe is the one brother, I want to get it right, John and Samuel Bivens, they were cousins. Do you know what they did? They went to Virginia and became slaves so that their pastor could be released and come and preach. That's charity. What did they do? They didn't give money. They didn't have it. They gave themselves. For more than a year, they toiled in slavery until Burroughs had earned and saved and raised enough money to buy his freedom. Then you know what those guys did? They came back and served God in their local church. That's charity. That's charity. See, because we have so much, and even those of us who don't earn a lot, we, we've really got a lot. Because we have so much, the idea of charity is meeting someone's financial need. That's not what charity is. It can be a part of it, no doubt about it. If you're really in, a bad, in bad shape financially and some brother in Christ comes along and helps you, isn't that a blessing? I've been there. When I think of Samuel and John Bivens selling themselves into slavery so their master, so their pastor could go free, man, that's charity. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So here's the question. Biblical Christian charity. The Bible says that's the top. That's the height. That's the bond of perfectness. That's the, that's the epitome. That's, the, that's the, the, the apex. That's the top of Christian charity. Here's the question. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm done. I've probably gone longer than I should have. But don't you think maybe one of our sins is selfishness? Um, when you see the financial report for Grace Baptist this year, so we'll have our meeting, I guess it's in February, we'll have our annual business meeting, and like six of you will come. But when you see the report, we received more money than in the 67-year history of our church this year. You guys really gave. You're not selfish with your money. You're not. I'm very thankful for that. But what about everything else? I'm so thankful. You know what's interesting? I'm discipling two guys right now, and they both mention the same guy as being a blessing to them. 
And these two guys, they don't do much together. They're different schedules, different lives. But the same person was a blessing, blessing to both of them. How about that? I'll embarrass him. It's Eric Edwards. It's, it's amazing what happens when God's people begin realizing that there's more to life than me. So I, I, I guess the thing that I want to ask you this morning, how are you in this area of charity? How are you? Would you define yourself as charitable? And the flip side of that would be selfish. Where are you in that? I can't answer that for you. We don't have any idea what other people do for other people. Amen? We don't know. But the most important thing for us to get from this message is that charity is, here verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, so charity does include giving the gospel, but also our own souls because ye were dear to us. I guess a prayer that we could all make is this. God, make your people dear to me. Make your people dear to me. How many of you, there's someone in this church that's dear to you? Would you raise your hands? They're, they're dear to you. What about the rest? <laughs> let's, make, let's ask God to make all His people dear to us. Uh, remember what I said? That discipleship is edifying others, right? Charity edifies. It's making it's disciples. disciples. How did Jesus say the world would know who His disciples were? By our love one for another. You see how it all comes together? It's all right there. Let's all stand together. Thank you for listening. I hope that God's spoken to you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you know that I need this message probably more than anybody in the room.